Welcome back to the Inclusive and Online Podcast. My name is Dan. I'm Kate. And I'm Kayla. And together, we're your hosts for the Inclusive and Online Podcast. On this month's episode, we're meeting up with two members of the OU community, Andrea Knutson and Noel Manjin. They're both active members of the Native American Advisory Committee on campus. Today, they'll be sharing some historical perspectives and updating us on the current status of ongoing projects around campus. Welcome to the podcast, Andrea and Noel. Uh, you're both active members of the Native American Advisory Committee at OU, which is you know, how we initially established our connection with you. Uh, in addition to that role, can each of you tell the audience more about what you do in your full-time roles at OU? Sure. Um, I am associate professor um, of English uh, here at Oakland University, and my uh, field is kind of more specifically early American literature into the 19th century. And I also currently serve on the executive committee for the Women and Gender Studies program. Thanks, Andrea. How about uh, you, Noel? Hi, this is Noel. Um, I'm Anishinaabe Ojibwe and an enrolled member of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians. Um, I'm a PhD student in the Department of Psychology, currently writing my dissertation. I work as a research assistant on a National Science Foundation grant. Um, and I also work as a contractor to support a national education study for the U.S. Office of Indian Education. Awesome. Thank you both for being here today. Um, I'd like to start by just kind of getting a, a high level, you know, overview. I, I want us to learn a little bit more about how we got to where we are today. So a, a brief overview of the history of Native American experiences with early Americans. Thank you so much for giving us that opportunity. Um, <clears throat> Uh, as the non-Native co-chair of the Native American Advisory Committee, um, I have found over the years how much my own field in early American studies informs the work that I do um, at the heritage site and also on the committee. Um, it's a long history, of course, that we could actually begin um, at 1492 with the arrival of Columbus in the West Indies, or what we now call the West Indies. Um, the British Empire was a little bit late um, to the colonial game, and in, we all know the landing of the Plymouth of the um, Mayflower at Plymouth Rock in 1620. But settler colonialism, as a um, method of colonialism, was in direct response to the conquest paradigm that the Spanish monarchy had sort of unfolded um, in the southern hemisphere, and in response to it. Um, British settlers decided that they wanted a method that would um, uh, be sort of the opposite of what the Spanish had committed um, in what we now call South America, which was a brutal conquest um, that decimated populations and civilizations um, through, through, through extreme violence, um, laying waste um, to whole empires. Uh, the English um, responded by trying to uphold a sort of um, more noble or virtuous um, character, if you could call it that, um, through what they called planting or settler colonialism. Um, uh, in 1620, we have the Mayflower, we have the Massachusetts Bay Colony being settled in 1630. And part of what they thought was key to um, how they viewed themselves as um, settlers was their Christian uh, was their Christian identity, and so they embarked on what they believed was a sort of more noble or virtuous form 
of colonialism, which put uh, quote unquote Christianity at the center. And that meant that they felt a responsibility or a faith, um, a duty to Christianize the native peoples um, in North America. That led to um, a sort of form of education that we would now call assimilation or um, genocide or, um, you know, uh, um, uh, they would call it Christianizing. They erected praying, what they called praying towns um, near Natick, what is now Natick, Massachusetts. And these were settlements that were established by the English um, colonial governments in New England from 1646 to 1675, which were um, erected to convert native people to the Christian religion. It led to the first um, pr printed production of the Bible in the Algonquin language in 1651 um, as an educational tool. And so, uh, for this period of time, from 1646 to 1675, missionaries were, quote unquote, educating Native people in the Christian um, doctrines through the Algonquin language. Um, and uh, at this point, there were about 14 different um, settlements um, or what were called praying towns that Native people lived in and that were seen as sort of educational spaces. This was, of course, all meant... Um, to impose uh, a white uh, supremacist norm um, on the Native people in the New England area um, and to assimilate them, right, quote unquote, assimilate them to white culture and European norms or English norms, cultural and linguistic, linguistic and doctrinal norms. Um, this Bible um, uh, was, I think I got the date wrong, the Bible was produced in 1663 and it was the first Bible presented or printed, I should say, in British North America. Um, the Algonquin people actually held uh, that land in common um, until about 1719. And then in 1781, the Massachusetts government, government officially incorporated Natick as a town. Um, this set a precedent, these praying towns set a precedent for the later developments in governmentally sponsored boarding schools or Indian industrial schools in America, which uh, began in the 1750s and went into the early, early 20th century. These schools were again erected on the principles of Christianity. Um, and, but of course, in their practice, they were um, incredibly um, violent, not just in the abuses um, uh, of native people, um, but in, their, in the cultural genocide that they committed so you would have Christian missionaries um, um, founding these Indian boarding schools and uh, with the goal of assimilating native people to, um, to a norm that was founded again in white attitudes of white supremacy. Um, children were kidnapped from their homes uh, and families and forced to lose their native identities at these industrial schools. Um, they were forced to lose their language and their cultures. Um, uh, survivors have testified to the most grotesque punishments for speaking their native tongues or practicing their um, their native their ceremonies. Um, they were forced to wear uniforms, to cut their hair, uh, and to adopt an English um, name. Their education then was focused on um, learning Christian doctrine. 
um, learning English. And the classes that they took were primarily on farming and on housekeeping. When they were not in class, uh, they were responsible then for the upkeep of the schools. So they were cleaning the schools themselves, taking care of the gardens. Um, this, of course, created what is called intergenerational trauma, that the trauma that those children suffered um, is trauma that is passed down through the generations. Um, and the National Native American Boarding School Coalition has counted at least 523 boarding schools in the U.S. alone, which incorporated these um, violent forms of, um, of, of, um, of, if you, right, of, of assimilation. Uh, out of that came the phrase that many people know, um, kill the Indian, save the man, right? So Michigan has three or, or had three boarding schools. Um, one was Holy Childhood Boarding School, which is located or was located in Harbor Springs. This closed down in 1983. So this is literally a boarding school that was still in operation in my lifetime. Um, also have the Mount Pleasant Indian Industrial Boarding School, which closed in 1934. It's located in Mount Pleasant. And uh, there was also one called Old St. Joseph Orphanage and School near Baraga, which closed in the 1950s. So these are schools that were the sites of death and cultural genocide. And if um, um, many listeners might know about the news that came out of British Columbia just a couple of years ago um, about the graves that have been found um, on site at these Indian residential schools, which is what they're called in Canada. Um, over 1,300 graves of children have been located on five boarding schools in Canada alone. So um, it goes without saying that education um, in our history as a nation, um, if we start to put these pieces together, um, we see uh, kind of a long, um, a long sort of, and pretty, a pretty holistic vision on behalf of either colonial governments or U.S. governments to um, uh, forcefully through under the guise of education um, assimilate um, Native people into what they considered an either civilized sort of society, but that of course equaled um, cultural genocide. Um, beyond that, it's um, some uh, as we go kind of closer to modern day, we have any number of uh, sort of acts um, of removal. The Cherokee Trail of Tears, our own region has the Potawatomi um, Trail of Death, um, which was the forced removal by the military in 1838 of about 859 members of the Potawatomi Nation from what is now Indiana to reservation lands in eastern Kansas. Um, there are, are treaties that are also being written and signed. Um, there are reservations that are being uh, formed. And of course, um, land is dispossessed through war. And so I can kind of sum up this history in, in one way, which is to say that it is always about land. 
and that settler uh, colonialism, that the colonial project from its inception, whether you want to date it at 1492 or you want to date it at, at, in 1620, is about land. And it's about um, possession of that land. And in order to get that land, um, praying pounds, boarding schools, reservations, treaties, and war have been used throughout the history of our nation to uh, dispossess Native people of their land and therefore their, um, their, their languages and cultures and histories. That was an incredible overview, Andrea. Thank you, you know, for sharing that. I mean, there's a lot of truth in there. There is you know, an extensive history of violence, you know, in our country, you know, aimed at uh, you know, non-white populations, and has been through our history. Uh, and it rang, you know, home true for me. I come from you know the Eastern Upper Peninsula, where there's you know a heavy uh, tribal presence up there. But growing up, you know, these stories of uh, you know were painted in a much kinder light. Of you know, say in my case, being raised in the Catholic Church. Uh, you know, Father Marquette was a missionary and, and came and did good. And, you know, th this good is here because of that. Uh, you know, that's not exactly, you know, the true story. And that's not just what we got as elementary. That was throughout, you know, the way that that picture was painted is actually you know, much different than, uh, you know, the way things actually played out. And it's important to have that reminder uh, out there. So I appreciate, you know, that rundown. I think it was helpful for me, you know, on a personal level, but just, you know, professionally speaking, we need to have uh, need to have that context to understand some of the importance of things that are happening today as well. So again, I just want to summarize or finalize and say thank you for sharing that detailed account uh, of that. Though there's so much more to it, I mean that was a, a great way to set things up. Thank you. And Noel, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what you're studying for your dissertation. We were curious about how you landed on that topic and why do you think it's important to study. Yeah, so I've always been interested in education, um, specifically as a non-traditional student. I've also been really interested in what encourages students to stay in school or go back to school. Um, so here at OU, I was given the opportunity to work on a National Science Foundation grant um, that was designed to support underrepresented under students in computer science. So it was working on a project that implemented a peer, peer learning community for high school age Black girls in computer science, which was facilitated by Black female teachers. Um, it, it consisted of an intensive summer camp experience and programming that supported the girls throughout the year in an advanced placement computer science principles course and exam. Um, <clears throat> So for my dissertation, I interviewed students that had participated in the program. I followed up with them two or three years after they completed the program. Uh, at this point, most of them were in college. One of them was a senior in high school. But I got to see um, where they all ended up and talk to them about their achievements and how part uh, being part of the program impacted them. So I then I decided to interview Native American women who were either in STEM programs in college or in STEM careers to understand their experiences as intersectional minorities in STEM. I think my research questions were guided by a lot of the history that Andrea discussed, um, the education that these settler colonial school systems 
that were used as a tool of assimilation and called cultural gen genocide undermined tribal sovereignty and the intellectual vitality of tribes. They had their own ways of knowing that weren't always accepted or prioritized. I guess I would, I would say that we've seen disparities within the settler colonial school system with Native American students, lower retention rates in high school and college, funding inequities, teacher shortages, lower achievement scores in standardized assessments. A lot of recent research has been looking at kind of taking back these indigenous ways of knowing and native science and implementing them. Um, also schools, education, when people think about education, they think about the settler colonial school system, but education is just the passing down of knowledge and native people have always had that. When they did it though, it wasn't in these age segregated spaces that we, we think of now. So a lot of these re this current research um, is implementing learning programs, native science with help from communities. So elders, um, families coming together to kind of come up with these different pedagogies to teach students science, native student science, and even non-native students have benefited from some of these programs. But I guess that's what guided my dissertation questions, my research questions, and wanting to interview Native women in STEM. Yeah, that's really, really interesting, you know, that you mentioned those kind of different modalities of education and how how knowledge is, you know, disseminated. And I, I think that that's a whole other topic that we'd really love to dive into at some point. Um, but but for today, I think we're going to shift gears a little bit. And, you know, I appreciate you both taking the time to give us that kind of higher level context for um, what we're going to talk about, which is really what's going on um, here at Oakland University today with regards to um, how we're advocating for Native American people and, you know, what we're doing here at Oakland to acknowledge some of these things. That's a wrap on part one of this month's episode. Be sure to join us next month when we learn more about what Andrea, Noel, and the Native American Advisory Committee have been up to around OU's campus. We'll see you next month. Until then, take it away, Kate. We'd like to thank Andrea and Noel for joining us today. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe and rate our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. We value your feedback and your ratings and reviews will help others discover our show. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Inclusive Online Pod and our Facebook page, Inclusive and Online. If you'd like to get in touch with us with your ideas, feedback, or request to collaborate, you can send us an email at inclusiveonlinepod at gmail.com. We'll be back next month with our next episode. Until then. We hope you feel included.